Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast where we cover everything from crypto trading and investing to NFTs, decentralized finance, and so much more. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell financial products. This podcast is sponsored by CoinFlex, the home of crypto yields. Whether you're an institutional or retail investor, you can earn and trade crypto easily on CoinFlex, which sees over $2 billion in daily trading volume. CoinFlex is committed to making crypto derivatives yield accessible to everyone, whether you are investing hundreds or thousands of dollars and more. With a newly launched automated market-making product called AMM+, you can earn yield on crypto by providing liquidity into the futures markets. The AMM Plus is 10 times more capital efficient than Uniswap and offers multiple collateral types so that you can earn more with less. Interested in learning more about CoinFlex and trying out the new AMM Plus? Head over to coinflex.com slash AMM to get started and let the market work for you. In this week's episode, I chat with John Crane, CEO of SuperRare, an NFT marketplace where you can create, sell, and collect rare digital art. This was an incredibly fun conversation where you will learn about the origin story of Super Rare and why John describes it as where Instagram meets Christie's. Get John's insights on the internet art economy and how Super Rare is positioned to decentralize and democratize art curation. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, John, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's so great to have you on the show with me. How are you doing? Doing great, Leslie. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, this is a conversation I know I've been looking forward to for a fairly long time. Something that our listeners as well, if they haven't closed their eyes and ears to the news recently, especially on crypto Twitter, they'll know that there's lots of exciting things happening with SuperRare within your community, on your platform as you're looking to scale that out to reach more and more people around the world, more artists and more collectors. It's just so exciting to be able to sit down with you today to chat through your background, of course, but also your your vision for Super Rare and all the exciting things that are happening. So anyone who's done a little digging on you, John, will know that you love building fun consumer products. And this is a theme that you can see through the different experiences that you've had career-wise. Can you talk a little bit about that and we can kind of get into the component about super rare? So yeah, I guess it probably all starts, you know, actually in college, I was studying architecture and civil engineering. So I had, you know, a desire, you know, a little bit of an artist, desire to create things while I was in school, kind of figured out that wasn't the path I was going to be going down, but I did I discovered a programming language called Processing, uh, which is sort of designed for artists to do creative coding. And I just got super fascinated and decided I was going to get into tech. And I moved to New York after school, and I worked in the agency world in Manhattan for a couple of years, which was super exciting. I got to do a range of different products. And so, you know, this was a lot of it was like designing new apps for clients if they took the bait, we'd get to go then go actually build it, which was super exciting. So I had a 
pretty wide range of experiences there. After the ad world, I did a short stint in the New York startup world. So again, kind of focused on you know, just building things that you know people enjoyed. At the same time, I was going to a bunch of different meetups in New York. One of those meetups was the New York Bitcoin meetup. Again, I kind of got very fascinated, which, you know, this is a, definitely a trend. I'll like learn something and then you just start digging and digging all the way down the rabbit hole. And so that was really fun. Met a bunch of great people uh, through the meetup and through going to those meetups, I learned about Ethereum, which again, I got very excited about. I actually was super skeptical at first. I was like, I don't know, I think it's maybe too too ambitious. And then once the network launched, I started playing around with Solidity and smart contracts and got really excited and went to go work with Consensus, which I think was probably like the only blockchain company in New York hiring at the time. So probably. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, so I was with them for a while doing a number of different things, focused on one of their spokes, uh, block apps that was kind of like trying to like help, you know, big companies get into smart contracts, understand what the blockchain was good at, also what it was not good at. So that was a little bit less consumer focused, but I was still really interested, loved what I was working on. And then after a couple of years, you know, it was really getting the itch to go build something, you know, wanted to it to be much more consumer facing. Uh, right around that time is when NFTs were like, you know, they were kind of finalizing the standard. And I got really excited about that, you know, just looking at how the internet was built, right? It's it's standards based. And then kind of ha- having seen you know, the, I, the mini ICO boom in 2017 on this like very simple smart contract standard, the, the ERC 20 standard, super straightforward, but part of, that's part of what makes it so powerful. And so seeing this with ERC 721 and thinking about like, you know, what could this standard be applied to? I just got very excited, started thinking about, you know, all of the old processing sketches that I had done. And I was like, what if you could use NFTs to create this digital art market, which, you know, I had even kind of outside of my interests in consumer tech and crypto felt like that at some point there would be this move towards art that was natively digital, you know, just thinking about like the interesting stuff happening with AR and VR and like, you know, kind of art moving off of the canvas, so to speak. And so more or less decided to go build an app that I wanted to exist. You know, so it was sort of selfish reasons. I thought it would be cool if something like Super existed. And, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, this is a very, very interesting point that you just make. And I think it's a sentiment that a lot of entrepreneurs share. It's building something out of a pain point, building something that you wish you had, but look, no one else is going to do it. And I don't think anyone else can do it better than I can, right? This, this type of feeling. What we're seeing now is born from that idea or that feeling that you had, right? Just so many years ago. Yeah. And we also felt we were like maybe a little bit too early for a couple of years. It was like kind of slow, steady or like, you know, did we miss the mark? But um, yeah, I know it's been very exciting over the past year. NFTs jumped from the niche and obscure to, you know, right into the mainstream. So it's been super crazy. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, before we move on to Super Rare, you said something that I wanted to poke at a little bit, which is you thought ETH was too ambitious at that time when you first learned about it. What made you think that way or, or feel that way about ETH or Ethereum? 
Well, so at the time, you know, there were kind of these like application specific chains, like Namecoin was, you know, this kind of like blockchain specifically designed for like, you know, decentralized naming service. So anyway, I was like, I don't know, like a general purpose programming language built into the ledger sounds really cool. But at the same time, there's all these, what about infinite loops? And like, just a bunch of questions around like, and like, and thinking through like, okay, how are you going to manage state for all of these different, you know, applications you're asserting are going to be built on top. And so uh, clearly I was wrong and yeah, I changed my <laughs> mind. I was like, oh, this is fucking amazing. At what point did you feel, you know, have that conversion or or turn to be like, you know what, this is the future, you know, ETH is money or, you know, ETH is what's going to build out the future of finance. At what point was that? So when it launched, I still kept an eye on it. Like, you know, I thought it was interesting. I was just like, I don't know if this is going to work. And like, I hadn't been like sucked into the to the vortex yet. I saw the network launch and I was like, okay, well, you know, kudos to them. They actually shipped a product, you know, that's more than many people who are, you know, saying they're going to build things in crypto. Really, it was, you know, me and my brother, who's our CTO, we actually went to a hackathon at the consensus office. They had like just opened their office in Bushwick and we're just playing around. And like from using the technology, I was like, okay, this is actually a thing. I think it's going to be big. Well, here we are today, you at the helm of Super Rare. And in one of the early conversations, this must have been in 2019, when you were kind of talking about NFTs, people were kind of curious about the space. And you're one of the few entrepreneurs within the NFT ecosystem actually building out a platform that, you know, hopefully more and more people would use. You described Superware as being Instagram meets Robinhood. Is that how you would describe Superware today? Pretty close. So I think we've we've refined it a little bit. So now often it's you know more like Instagram uh, meets Christie's. But still, you know the idea being that like, I mean, kind of what Robinhood did or is trying to do with finance. Like the same thing for me. One of the early concepts is like art collecting is, and you know, not necessarily just like fine art or contemporary, but like art more broadly. Everyone can have a relationship with, you know, whether or not you've taken an art history class, people like to put stuff on their walls. And art collecting itself is this, you know, game that most people don't really understand the rules to. So like most people have not taken a contemporary art class. They don't even, you know, if you think about something like music, you can say, well, what kind of music do you like? And someone will say, I love jazz or I love hip hop. Whereas like most people don't even have the vocabulary to say <laughs> what kind of visual art they like or dislike. They're like, I don't know, the Ikea prints this week were pretty cool. Uh, I got some, nothing against Ikea prints. But I think if people were just, if there was a little bit easier to get involved and kind of like learn the basics, there's this massive opportunity to you know support more artists and also, you know, bring more interesting art into people's lives, which I think would be like a net positive. So the idea was like, well, what if you could make art collecting fun and accessible? So that's the ethos. Accessible, democratizing that experience, right? We're, we're going to get into that because I know that's uh, something that you're trying to do with a rare token. But to start though, keeping on what you've just said there, how would you describe Super Rare's brand today? talking to the you know average crypto user or perhaps not even someone in the mainstream 
looking at NFTs as the gateway to understanding crypto. How would you describe the brand to that type of person? I mean, I think the super brand is, you know, it's it's about high quality. Uh, so a big part of it was like, you know, we want the art on super to be high quality and authentic, right? Know that you have confidence in that you're looking at something that a person or an art collective, you know, somebody created this. This is a genuine piece of art. You know, that's so it's not just something people are you know, grabbing off of Google and you know, sort of like trying to make some fast cash on authenticity, trust, you know, creativity, like trying to pull a lot of these concepts from the art world and like the creator economy, but also, yeah. So I don't, I don't know, like high end authentic art, easy to get into those come to mind. Taking all of these elements that you've just talked about, what are some of the biggest questions you're exploring right now? Yeah. So I think the biggest one is, you know, can you successfully curate like at scale And so kind of what I mean by that is like, if you think about art versus other types of media or content, right? Like, I don't think the way you scale products like Super Rare and a platform for creators and collectors is the same way that YouTube scaled, right? It's not about more. So just like getting all of the content and then having really good sort of algorithmic, you know, video suggestion. You know, it's like, it's interesting too, because like Super Rare is part, you know, one part marketplace, one part social network, but there's no ads involved, right? So like, you know, we are not motivated to try to just keep you scrolling. Like really what we want to do is to kind of help you find, it's like find your tribe. Like what kind of art do you like? What kind of art community do you want to be a part of? And so it's trying to think through this, like the curation is very challenging on a small scale and on a big scale. And so it's, that's a big part of the motivation behind the rare token is trying to build, you know, designed simple yet elegant systems that allow for community curation that doesn't just end up looking like, oh, this is a huge content vortex, like more is better in art. Certainly more is not better. Like a high-end version of Pinterest. You don't want to be that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's really interesting. So If people go on your Twitter right now, your top pin tweet is about the internet art economy. What does the internet art economy of the future even look like to you? I mean, it's it's probably a foreign phrase for a lot of people who are just really trying to understand what the next phase of art looks like off the canvas, as you say, right? So what is that that vision? It's really interesting to think about I was lucky living in New York and that I had friends who were you know, trying to make it as artists. I have a friend who runs an art gallery professionally. That's all she does. And so I was a little bit handheld into the experience of collecting art. So what's it like to go to an art fair and like how, you know, talking to the gallerists and the artists there, which for me was super fun. It was very interesting to like chat with people, learn about what motivated them. You get, you know, you're like, well, this is amazing. And like, look at that. I can't believe that's a horrible piece of art. Who would buy that? You know, it's this fun, visceral, emotional experience, but it's, it's kind of hard to do. And so like, when I think about like the internet art economy, it's like taking those elements, but then mapping them onto Twitter and the metaverse and like thinking about like, why do, why do people collect art? You know, I think it's, it's much more nuanced than like, oh, I want something cool to have on my wall, right? Like people 
buy art for historical significance or, you know, to show off to their friends or because they, you know, they genuinely just want to look at something nice on their wall. But I think there's a number of different reasons. And so I think the art economy of the future for sure involves like AR art, right? Like, I think that's something really interesting where people love face filters and the sparkly halo (laughs) thing. And like, you know, that's, it's very technical, but it's absolutely still, you know, in my mind, kind of fine art. So like, how are we, you know, there's a lot of these different creative touch points. And so just thinking about like, okay, we have these patterns of patronage that are hundreds of years old, at least. And so what does that look like in a digital sense where, you know, maybe the art is, you know, it's not tactile in the same way as something physical, but, you know, I, you could argue that like a face filter is pretty tactile and that you kind of feel like you get to play with it. You can almost touch it. And so, yeah, I think it's just thinking through like, it's like new and old patterns. It's like, how do you take this old thing? It doesn't map directly one-to-one, but there are pieces of it, I think, that will manifest. Right, yeah, the intersection of the traditional art world and and this digital ecosystem of art that really is amorphous, right? There's no straight path of what things should look like. And and I think that's the beauty of Superware. It's like, it's a canvas for experimentation for even a lot of traditional artists who create the high quality work that you're talking about, right? And who want to just reach a new audience through Super Rare. So you have those types of people as well as emerging artists who for the first time want to experience art in a digital way and they're young perhaps, they haven't really started a career and they found Super Rare as one way to do that, right? So you're kind of mixing all different levels of art, which is super cool. It's very fun and interesting to see how it's evolved, you know, that we had ideas about how it would uh, look, but certainly some of them just kind of like came about organically. Yeah. So, you know, I'd be curious to just hear like how have your conversations with certain investors been, right? I know Mark Cuban is an investor in your company, as well as someone like Ashton Kutcher, who, you know, most people probably know as an actor, but he's recently run his own NFT project with Mila Kunis called Stoner Cats. I mean, what is it like just talking through the the future of art with these types of people? Yeah, it's really exciting. I think, you know, people like you know, Mark Cuban had, you know, he's experienced in that he was you know, kind of part of the first dot-com boom, uh, has been, you know, interested in crypto for a while. And I think they really understand just like, you know, if there's a plausible explanation for how we get somewhere, right? If you like you know, Google today compared with like Google when it launched, like, you couldn't even really, right? Like Google Maps didn't exist. It's like all these things. But if you're like, if you can kind of connect these dots, then, you know, the really good investors see the like, oh, wow, you know, it's not guaranteed you're going to get there. But like, here's a somewhat clear path, or like a plausible path, let's say. Like it's it's not completely impossible that this could happen. And if it did happen, that's going to be pretty profound. And so, you know, it's really fun to talk with people like Mark who kind of get that they've been through the process of like taking, you know, taking something from the ideation stage and, you know, carrying it all the way through. And I think with, you know, folks like Ashton who understand culture, I think that was the two interesting things, like really good entrepreneurs 
are not necessarily also people who really understand culture. I mean, like somebody like Mark Cuban, he gets both, but not certainly not everyone. And so like talking to people like Mark and Ashton who get culture kind of understood very you know, right away that like, you know, a lot of people are like, well, you can just right click and save. So like, why would anyone buy an image? And you're like, I mean, it's like, why does anyone buy a Supreme shirt? It's the same, like, this isn't a fancy shirt. It's made of the same material as Supreme, but Supreme is better, you know, has cultural significance and my plain black shirt doesn't. So, you know, I think they, for them, that wasn't even like a hurdle to jump past. It was like, oh, wow, you now have this way to kind of show off and flex a collection online, whether that's like making it your avatar, building a little gallery, like whatever that happens to be, you know, they kind of understood like immediately like, oh, wow, this could... If this takes off, it will be enormous. That's exciting. One way that you've described super rare before is that it's building for openness. And, you know, on the platform, I think right now, right, it's only supporting one of one NFT pieces at the moment versus lots of open editions like some of the other platforms. Talk to us about that decision when you decided to go this route? Because some people might say you're building for openness, but these one-on-one on, one pieces are fairly expensive, right? Hence the high quality vetted nature of it. But a lot of people coming in don't have as much to spend on some of these really incredible pieces. So how do you look at this dichotomy? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. And so, I mean, the early on, the decision around going the one-of-one route really was you know, thinking about like more options are not necessarily better, right? You know, the decision fatigue you might get where you're like, I want some toothpaste. And you go to the grocery store and you're like, oh my word, there's like a hundred different types of toothpaste. Like, I just want one that's not over, you know, like I just need something. So add, this idea of like adding constraints and keeping things simple was really important. And to us, it made the most sense if you think about like trying to take this to a mainstream audience you know, what's the difference between 100 editions of something or 10 or 20? You know, it's kind of an arbitrary number. Whereas if you think about like, you know, this person created this digital object and this is like, this is the original. This is the manifestation of like, you know, the metaphor to the physical world and that like, this is a digital painting. So the idea was like, let's try to map some of these, patterns on to make it simple so if you go tell talk to a mainstream audience like we just want it to be like very simple easy to understand you know the goal really was to get lots of people involved in you know trying to grow this new economy and ecosystem so that was kind of like the original motivation and you know at the time art was selling for like a hundred dollars so it wasn't (laughs) such a big deal true yeah fast forward to today where you know there's pieces going for you know, millions of dollars. I think it's really interesting to think about things like fractionalization. So I think, you know, there's sort of like interesting philosophical questions around like, what's the difference between an edition of a hundred and a one of one that's been fractionalized into a hundred shards or pieces? Mm, I've never thought about that. I, yeah, I think there's some interesting things there. So, you know, we're certainly looking into, you know, how fractionalization and kind of like, Collaborative collecting is one way we're thinking about it. 
art's very social. So like, you know, what does it mean to, to collect art with friends? And then at the same time, I think another part of like this, you know, taking this step towards decentralization and, you know, really defining the lower level protocol for super rare a little bit more. I think having, I think at that level, the optionality makes complete sense. If you want to have open editions or do one of ones or have fractionalization, right? Like building those low level tools that like may or may not get manifested in a user experience. I think the optionality makes sense there, but like, and if you like look at all the best consumer apps, like they don't have the most features. They just have the best feature. Like it's, it's often one feature that's like, the, you know, what is the killer feature? So I don't know if that answers your question. I feel like I was just rambling a little bit, but. Another one of my great sponsors is Amber Group. Amber Group is an integrated crypto finance platform behind the popular Amber app, a crypto finance app that allows you to easily earn, swap, trade, and invest in crypto. You can earn up to 5% APY instantly by depositing assets to your wallet and receive daily interest payouts. This means earning interest 24-7 with no lockup. You can also customize fixed earn investments between 1 and 360 days to enjoy up to 10% APR with flexible redemptions. Right now, new users can earn up to 16% APR on Bitcoin, Ethereum, and USD stablecoins. Go and check out Amber app and earn interest on your own terms. Yeah, no, I mean, you pose that really interesting question. Philosophically speaking, is a fraction of a really insanely high quality um, art worth just as much as one of many, but in its full form, right? Like a piece versus like a full artwork. <laughs> We're not just, you know, having a, a shard of it, if you will, sitting in your wallet, right? Like, what can you actually put on your screen if that, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I my personal opinion is that fractionalization makes more sense. And so, like, philosophically, I think the idea of digital editions doesn't make that much sense. And, like, really, you know, like, having collectively, collective ownership makes more sense than having a bunch of small little individual copies of something. And then also it works better for like a market too. Like if you want to like build the like bigger and bigger markets. But anyway, this is my personal opinion. Are there DAOs buying art on SuperRare? Is is that a trend that you're seeing? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So there's been I think I mean it might even be like about a year ago. I don't remember when Flamingo DAO was kind of the first one that I was aware of, or is a DAO created specifically to collect and acquire NFTs. So yeah, there's it's a trend that has only grown, you know, over the past year. And there's pretty interesting projects. One is called, I think it's like called Party DAO, but basically allows for people to come together, place bids. So like it's sort of like a small single purpose DAO with the intent to collect and kind of like underneath the hood uses fractionalization, but you kind of like come together, form a small DAO and acquire something altogether. And then that NFT is you know, collectively owned by the DAO. And so I think, you know, in my mind, I'm, it's almost like a world of Warcraft raid or something where, you know, you come together, you've got a shared, shared goal, which is in this case is to acquire a piece of art, you know, and you're going to war with the other DAOs who are also interested in acquiring the piece of art. 
Well, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the superware network. I think that's really a lot of the innovation is headed towards, especially with the most recent rare drop. I read somewhere that the retro active airdrop was distributed or distributed 15% of all the rare that there is uh, to over 4,200 members of the superware community. And rare as a curation token is I imagine going to take on many, many different forms, right? So one thing that our listeners might be very interested in understanding is what is the utility of the rare token? We do have some docs for people who want to dive in. You can really dive into the weeds. But in thinking about what makes tokens useful, what kind of tokens are interesting, right? We've you know that we've seen lots of DeFi governance tokens come out. A while back, token curated registries, which you know are like specifically designed for curation, were you know quite popular, at least at like a philosophical level. So the initial use case for rare is going to be curating these things we're calling spaces. So super spaces are independently curated uh, storefronts or sort of like parts of the website. You know, one way to think about them might be to think about them like a subreddit, and that. Yeah, each subreddit Reddit is different. They have different missions, different, you know, different members, different social customs. And so, you know, with spaces, I think this is an interesting area where, you know, like if you think about something like the open editions, maybe there's a space that does want to have multi-edition, right? I think that's something that like let's let these different groups of people kind of decide how they wanna represent art, how they wanna curate art. And the way it's going to work with the rare token is spaces will be voted on by token holders. And so the lower level tooling will all be open source. Anyone can look at it. But if you want to be, you know, like sort of like an official node in the super network, you'll be voted in by the rare holders. And one thing you've mentioned here, which maybe adds on to that definition that you talked about earlier for Superware, uh, which was where Instagram meets Christie's. Here with the addition of the spaces concept, you say you can now think of Superware as a metaverse promenade of community curated galleries. Where Where is that emoji with the guy going like this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think... It's really fun to think about how these, you know, kind of like 2D galleries manifest in virtual worlds. And so that's something where, you know, we haven't done a ton of, you know, product development, but I think it's really, you know, even if you just see like platforms like Decentraland or CryptoVoxels, you know, one of the early use cases for NFTs were these, you know, more or less like promenades with galleries you could go into, you know, and so... Yeah, I think it's really exciting. And it also, you know, for us as a, a pretty small team, it's been a huge bottleneck just doing the curation, right? Like trying to put a lot of thought and energy into it. Whereas now having a bunch of different community members and participants in the network doing the curation, we're going to have, I think, a much, you know, much more sort of diversity around like, well, what kind of art's being shown? You know, like just because I like something doesn't mean you like it to you. Good curation might be something totally different. So I'm excited to see, you know, which spaces come online and uh, which ones are the, you know, the most popular. So this is, I guess you can say a way to scale community participation, maybe? Is, is that part of the mission here? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, kind of like Reddit where it's like long term, I envision each space, you know, really being its own, you know, maybe it turns into its own formalized sub DAO or something like this, but really is its own community, its own social customs, kind of rules for posting, you know, all sorts of things like that. Yeah. And each space has a kind of like a subculture as well. And you might want to join one because you resonate with the culture and then you learn about what exactly the space is, right? Just based on the people, operators, as you guys call them, for these spaces. What was the inspiration for this model of spaces? Yeah, it actually came about pretty organically. Like we would have, you know, curators, galleries, art collectives kind of approach us and say, hey, you know, we want to mint art under, you know, this name. And it's actually, you know, five artists together, or it was a gallery representing, you know, a roster of folks. And, you know, it was, it kept happening again and again. And we were like, oh, this, you know, that seems like there's something here. Like, how do we, and, you know, for us, like, we love partnering with great curators. Like they bring in new artists, like, you know, it's new conversation. And so, it kind of just grew out of this idea or, you know, just thought that like, this has happened a number of times. It seems like there's something here. Like, how can we run with this and, you know, build a fun, engaging experience around it. Let's talk about the super rare DAO. I know that you're super excited um, about that. We were chatting a little bit before the start of this conversation. And and this ties into the things that we've just mentioned, right? As, uh, especially with this new cur- curation token, uh, Rare. One of the commitments that the DAO has is to direct 100%, 100% of platform fees to a community treasury. That is not common at all. So I, I feel like this is the first of its kind. How does this impact the way that users experience Super Rare? I mean, yeah, it's not common. It was a big decision for us. You know, we, we were like, Every, we're, we're going to go this direction. You're at a crossroads, like, which way, which way are we going to go? And we we're like, we're all in. And so, I mean, I think there's different, like, I think about Super kind of like, you know, a stack of, you know, at the top is kind of like the consumer facing, you know, collecting experience. And, you know, I kind of view governance as almost it's a new part of the product, sort of like an advanced, you know, you, you click on the advanced settings and you can, you can dive a little deeper. And so I really think ultimately what it's going to do is give people and, you know, it is actually giving people greater ownership over, you know, this decentralized community and network. You know, our goal is to maintain a super high quality consumer facing product. And I think over time, the way that product decisions get made and, you know, the way that new smart contracts are developed, right, there's greater and greater community involvement there. But ultimately, you know, what we want Super Rare, the network to be is a place that people kind of, you know, create and discover new and interesting art. And so I think it's a it's a big mental shift, but hopefully it's still a very simple and easy and under, easy to understand uh, consumer experience at the end of the day. Yeah, t- I'm talking about understanding consumer experience one thing that is super important for any startup or even established company is user research, right? Understanding who am I building this platform for? If I'm introducing a new feature or a new product set, how does this 
impact or add to the experience of, you know, being a user on this platform. What are some interesting insights you've kind of gotten from the early days of doing user research or whatever <laughs> you can equate to that in the early days and and now as you continue to build out more things? Yeah, I think you know, one of the, just the amount of excitement and passion was very palpable even really early right that you know when this was just you know 20 artists and like I don't, you know 20 collectors right it was just a small group of friends it felt different like you know I, I think it's really interesting the fact that like it is a social network but it's not this advertising you know based business model it really changes the incentives for you know us as builders and like, the, you know, the community that we're also a part of. And so just the level of excitement and passion around this idea of like collecting art, supporting your friends was like extremely palpable, even when it was very small. And I think as we've seen it grow, you know, it gets, it's harder and harder to know all of the artists on the platform, but you still kind of do find your, you know, find your tribe and you can like develop this like very strong sense of, you know, like ownership in a way where it's like, you know, like music that you love, like you've, you feel like you're the biggest fan of, I don't, I don't know who it is, but um, there's some artists who I've been following and collecting from over the past three years now. And like, I really feel like I'm their friend. Who knows? You could ask them. We may not be friends, but you know, like it's this interesting <laughs> relationship. And I thought that was super fascinating just to think about like with digital media, it's, you know, anyone can see it, but only one person owns it. And like, what does that mean? And like, I think really what it translates to is it like the social elements of this type of art collecting are much more prominent than the contemporary art world where the arts in your house, no one can see it unless they come over to your house. Or it's in a vault. Or it's in a vault in one of the free ports, <laughs> right? There's these... You know, Where no one gets to enjoy it at all. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, yeah, I think just the early user research we did was, it's always surprising, you know, how, you know, I don't know, like social networks are obviously like, you know, serious products, but like in my mind, you know, my tweets are not that serious. Whereas like my NFT collection is like something I really value and feels very much like part of your identity, right? Like in crypto, we like to talk about this idea of digital identity. And I think NFT collecting plays into that in a very interesting way. And so I think, yeah, like the identity and like reputation layer that while it's not a formalized system, you can draw really interesting collusion conclusions about, you know, what type of artist is this or what type of collector is this? And so that's been pretty fascinating. Yeah. At the top of the conversation, you talked about how some people don't even have words to describe the genre of art that they see in a traditional art gallery, right? Or art museum. What types of genres do you think are new because of NFTs, because of the boon of digital art? Like, are there certain names or labels that you've seen crop up just in the past, you know, couple of years that you've been running Super Rare? Yeah, that's a in super interesting question. I mean, like, it's interesting in that a lot of, you know, if you think about 
art history, there's you know these like periods of time. All it's like Dadaism or you know postmodernist art. Whereas with this type of art, it's I feel like it's much more descriptive in a way. You know, so like for example, like voxel art. Like I don't. This is probably a term before, but you know, it's like descriptive of the technical style for how something is created. And I think that's one thing that's kind of interesting is it's more. And I think it's still very early, right? Like taxonomies are like a whole, you know, almost like science in and of themselves. And so this is the early space of exploration for us. That's really fun and exciting. But a lot of these taxonomies are like almost technical in nature, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, because I'm just imagining, right? Someone, you know, again, a mainstream user, not necessarily crypto native or follows crypto art. They go onto super rare and they kind of, they want to search by filters, but not necessarily by artists, because one, they don't know who who in the world is being featured on Super Rare in the first place if, if it's not highlighted on the front page, for example. But these little label bubbles, right, where they get to pick by genre. And then I thought about that and I go, I, I wouldn't even know what words to use. You know, there's like squiggle art. Do you write squiggle on, on there? Uh, do you write animals because of, you know, bored apes, right? There's cat NFTs. It's just, it's so unique. And because of the the diversification of NFTs, it's been hard for me to just figure out how to even categorize these different NFTs in my head. So that was, that was more of a selfish question because it's, it's something that I've been thinking about and just, I don't know, I'm kind of in this space of there must be words, right? But as you say, taxonomy is not a thing <laughs> just yet. Yeah, it's it's still being developed. And it's interesting, I think if you think about, you know, more contemporary art, it's almost like there's like sculpture, there's canvas, you know, sort of like video, like digital art was like kind of a genre. Whereas like in the NFT space, you know, there's but way more file formats, right? It's like, oh, this is like a piece of 3D art, or this is a piece of AR art, or this is an animated GIF, or, you know, like this is a video, this is an audio file. So there's all these different form factors, even before you get to like, well, what are the contents of the form factor? And so that's, you know, it's interesting anyway. Like, I think that'll probably play into the taxonomy to some extent. Cool. I'll put a pin in that and come back to this conversation. <laughs> yeah, maybe you ping me in like six months and hopefully we have uh, some well-developed taxonomies for you. Nice, nice. So, John, as we wrap up here, I did want to just give you the opportunity to talk about maybe some of the questions that you have about NFTs, because I know there's a lot of questions everyone is always exploring, but some of the major questions you have about NFTs still, and perhaps more generally about building consumer-friendly products in crypto, right? Because your lessons are applicable to anyone who's building a product that is touching a consumer, whether it be more finance-heavy or perhaps more NFT and art-heavy. These lessons can be shared, right? So would love for you to talk about some of this stuff. Yeah, I think... I mean, one of the big lessons for us has been that, you know, like really early, everyone, they were like, oh, the way this thing succeeds is like, you need to have credit card checkout. And it turned out that was completely not true. The people who required credit card checkout, like buying a JPEG was like far too much of a mental leap. But people who already had, you know, ETH in their MetaMask, 
have kind of already bought into this idea of, you know, digital scarcity with their ether. So it's you know much less of a jump for them to say like, oh, this piece of art is can also be scarce. I mean, that was just one thing where I was like, is the technology part, right? Like to one, on, to one extent, you want the UX to be as seamless as possible. But also if you abstracted it too much for the early adopters, right? Like part of what they liked was the blockchain component. Like they wanted to go see Etherscan and that, you know, this was actually the number of the token you said it was. And like, you know, some of these things were kind of, you know, they were features, not bugs. And so that was, uh, that was pretty interesting. And then I think another thing that's been interesting is just the way, just thinking about, uh, you know, social, like the social elements of super air and like the cultural elements and how those can be used to really grow crypto as like a more general ecosystem. And so one of the things I think NFTs are doing is it's sort of Trojan horsing all of crypto into the mainstream. And kind of what I mean by that is like people show up for the art, they jump through all the hoops to get ether somewhere and then they jump into discords and then they hear people talking about like, you know, degen yield farming. And they're just like, <laughs> well, I'm still figuring out what NFTs are, but like, I'm going to take note of that and come back to it later. And so we saw with our community who, you know, we personally helped art it. Like we have very extensive documentation around like, how does the MetaMask Chrome extension work? And like, for lots of people, this is the first Chrome extension they'd ever installed. You know, like artists are not all necessarily super deep in customizing their computer and things like Chrome extensions. And so, but it sort of was this gateway. And so I think when thinking through, you know, new DeFi protocols or like whatever it happens to be, like what are, I mean, other than a technological in innovation, like if there is, you know, a cultural element to it, that's, you know, interesting. I think that's a much bigger hook than just like, oh, this is the best futures trading platform because, you know, gas is cheaper and like, I, you know, whatever it happens to be. And so just thinking about like, I don't know, like the broader implications, like why is it interesting to have a better futures platform or you know, like what else is happening here versus just like technology for the sake of technology's sake is not so interesting. But like for us, it was like, yeah, this piece of text kind of complicated, but now artists all over the world can make a living selling their art online and they don't need to live in New York. They don't need to live in London or Hong Kong, right? These art centers, if you didn't live in one previously, it was pretty hard to break into the art scene. Whereas like, you know, now it's much easier. And so like, what are these, you know, what else is changing besides like this new interesting piece of technology that you've built? And John, you were last here in Hong Kong in 2018 for a very tiny NFT event. When are we going to get you back out for another one now that you are one of the stars of the NFT space and probably will headline whatever event that gets put on here? Oh, I would love to be back out. Yeah, it was uh, so it was the Nifties event that took place 2018. It was a small group of folks. Lots of these people are still involved in the ecosystem, which is kind of fun to see. Yeah, I hope to make it back out soon. I, I loved Hong Kong. The food is great. It's a beautiful place. So hopefully we can, uh, you know, grab a coffee in person next time, Leslie.
IRL. Exactly. <laughs> that is what I'm looking forward to most. John, we'll appreciate your time with us on Crypto on Stack. I know this will be a real treat for our listeners. So look out for all the interesting things that are going to be happening on the Superware platform. John, again, thank you so much. It was great to have you on. Yeah, thanks again, Leslie.